Hello, everyone. My name is Andy Savage. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. I am the teaching pastor at High Point Church, a church we started about 13 years ago. Me and a really good friend named Chris Conley started the church. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with the Watermark staff team, uh, Chris Conley's wife, Karen, uh, his sister is married to Scott Kadersha. So we have a long uh, relationship with the folks at Watermark and uh, love this church, love Scott, and love what everybody's doing here. And uh, it's interesting about four years ago, five years ago, I sat in a table in this room and, uh, and they had one of their smaller training sessions for re-engage. So we came, uh, we were trying to figure out marriage ministry. The, my story with marriage ministry is I'm passionate about helping people with marriages, but I'm a teaching pastor. So I teach all the time. I, my job responsibilities do not allow me to run a marriage ministry. I don't run a marriage ministry. I help run a church and do a lot of other things. And as you might imagine, uh, as a teaching pastor, I mentioned the word marriage from the stage. My schedule fills up with counseling appointments and need to meet and all that kind of stuff. So we were like, how are we going to deal with all these issues? So we came here to figure out how to do re-engage. In a side conversation, I learned about merge, the pre-marriage ministry. And I thought, whoa, we need to start. That's the one thing I know I can start. So I want to tell some of that story. But we ended up starting a pre-marriage ministry that kind of launched us into marriage ministry. And uh, we now run a... a, um, a newer but fairly full plate as far as marriage is concerned. We're, we're now engaged at all levels. So it's, uh, it's growing. I wouldn't, uh, we are not there yet, but we've learned a lot of things along the way. So the, uh, this, the title of this session is Marriage Ministry Made Simple, which I don't think is an appropriate title um, for anything related to marriage ministry. It is not that simple, um, but we're going to try our best. I think, we can, I think it can be simpler than it may be has been in the past, or maybe has, uh, as you are engage, engaging in the marriage ministry, thinking about it, there's some things we can think through. So I want to, I have more information for you than you will be able to digest. So what I've done is uh, I have posted, uh, part of my, my content today is going to be a list of 20 things we've learned about marriage ministry that I think will be helpful for you. Uh, those 20 things are on my blog. You can just go to my blog and get it later, um, uh, andysavage.com. Just go there. It's the, it's, you'll see the marriage ministry logo and stuff, um, and you can look at that. But I put it there because I wanted, I, would, I, I opted for you to be engaged with me rather than scribbling notes the whole time or trying to fill in blanks or trying to stare at a screen. So we're going to talk a little bit about marriage ministry. Now, here's one of the aha moments I had when we first, oh, I should stop. I did not introduce myself appropriately. I am married to a beautiful woman named Amanda, and we have five children. Um, Yes, five children, boys, all of them are boys. And so, yeah, pray for my wife. Um, I have a blast. Every single day is fun. Every single day we talk about poop and titi. It cannot get any better. But we have a a great time. But uh, we've been married for uh, almost 14 years, and uh, we just have a lot of fun, and uh, she's a strong woman. She's at home handling five kids while I get to be here with you. So uh, that's really my claim to fame. So um, when we started looking at marriage ministry, we had this like aha moment around what's happening in our church. We started our church uh, largely with a bunch of singles and college students, like a lot of young church plants start with that way. That's how we started. And uh, over the course, we had a, a ministry much like the porches here. And so we ended up having, you know, these, those five, six, seven hundred singles we had every week at the gathering started getting married. And uh, so we turned into, from a singles church, we turned into a young marriage church, which what felt like overnight. And uh, like I mentioned in the little intro, uh, as a teaching pastor, one of the unique dynamics that I bring to the table is my passion for marriage ministry comes out in basically every sermon. So uh, I'm teaching. Our church has grown up on uh, what, what I call the two-headed monster. Me and Chris Conley share the teaching at our church. So we rotate based on series. So every four to six weeks, you get one of us or both of us in rotation. So about every four to six weeks, our church is hearing me bleed marriage ministry and marriage and family and parenting. It just comes out of me. I can't control it. And, uh, and so every time that happens, we get the influx of request for helping with marriage or help me, help me with this parenting issue or, hey, we're, we're getting married and we want you to uh, do pre-marriage counseling with us. All those things started coming in to the point where it, it was just overwhelming. It just could not be done. It was one of those things where I started realizing that every single thing we were doing for married people was not just below par. It was almost dangerous where we were because I would, with great intentions, agree to marry a couple. They're going to come to my office. We're going to do six to eight sessions that turned into two and a half. 
because schedule just didn't allow it. And so then I feel negligent. I am not preparing these couples well. This is not, this is not good. This is not helpful. And then a couple would come to me in a crisis. I mean, literally we're about to kill each other. Like we're, you know, we're dealing with these issues and we're just at our wits end in marriage. And I would say, come and meet. And I would realize I really need to meet with them like 30 times, right? But I can't. So then I would do what any responsible pastor would do. I would refer them to a counselor in town, only to find out they went one time, hated the counselor, and then get divorced. Completely separate from our knowledge or ability to help and just everything you can imagine. And because I'm passionate about it, I answered the door at 12 o'clock at night when a young wife standing on my front porch is crying. And me and my wife are in the den crying with her, trying to help her piece together her marriage and hold them together. Only for that marriage to fall apart. There's nothing we could do. He didn't want to be a part of it. I dealt with a a couple for months. I'd meet with them every uh, three or four weeks or so. Things seemed to be making progress until I got word, and this is not an exaggeration at all. Uh, I got word that he pulled the trigger and he shot his wife and killed her. My next conversation with him was between glass at a a prison. Um, I dealt with a couple, they got divorced because... out of this was uh, very likely a sexual addict in the marriage. Um, he had uh, forced his wife to engage in uh, sexual activities that include threesomes and pornography and everything you can imagine. Finally, was moving towards divorce. I called this guy and begged him not to get a divorce, begged him to get help. And he said, no, I'm getting a divorce. And walked away from his family, his kids, the whole nine yards. And undoubtedly, you've had those same conversations. The conversation with the couple that comes, they want to get married, and you have to tell them you don't think they should get married. I'm so pro-marriage. I rarely have that conversation. Like, I'm, I'm always hopeful. I want this couple to make it. I love seeing young people get married. So if I tell you you don't need to get married, you don't need to get married. And find out from this couple, they went on and got married. She comes back to my office one day and says, he ran off with another woman and took all my money. And it's like, what do you do? But that's marriage ministry. That's the reality. And you're, you're doing it, you're hoping, because you just want a couple to make it. You just want, you want to spare those children that struggle and that strife that they're going to go through. You want to do your best for marriage ministry. And I am, in a, my family life, my, my upbringing is an anomaly in our world today. I added it up about five years ago. I did the math. Um, surrounding me from my, set, my two sets of grandparents, the legacy that surrounds me. Uh, my grandparents on my dad's side had five children. My mom's side, they had four children. Out of all of those marriages and all of their children's marriages, all of my cousins that got married, I am surrounded or was surrounded by uh, over 500 years of unbroken marriage. Not a single divorce until about five years ago. And a cousin got divorced. So I have this incredible sense of stewardship regarding marriage. I feel like I've been handed a legacy that is just uh, off the charts. And so I want to see that replicated. So as we were looking at married couples in our church, we noticed this bell curve happening. You guys know the bell curve. So if you take all of the married people in the life of your church, uh, and uh, Ted was alluding to this uh, in the main session, you're going to find that the majority of the people, the fat part of the bell, are just your standard married people. And you will have some in crisis and you will have some in pre, pre-marriage. But the vast majority of your church population is this group of people right here, married people. Unless you are a, a really young, really hip church and the majority of your people are single, you, the majority of your church population are married people. And primarily marriage with kids or grandkids. And so what we realized was, man, we, got, we have to think about marriage ministry differently. It's not simply let's help married people or let's do some weddings or let's help a couple that's struggling. So we started looking at it in these three groups. There's the pre-marriage group, which is usually, hopefully, a group of people who comes through this phase of, of marriage or, or relationships once, maybe twice. But pre-marriage is not a, they're not going to live here. They're going to quickly get into here. And then this crisis area, we hope they don't go there, but um, a lot of them are, but we hope they don't stay there. We hope they return back to this larger piece of the puzzle. So what we did was we said, okay, let's, let's get a vision 
for what we're going to do for married couples. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not, if you haven't started a marriage ministry yet, or if you're in the early stages like we were just a couple of years ago, I want to encourage you to take a nice big step back and look at the big picture of what you do. Start looking at the group of people in your church and say, let's figure out where we want to start. So I'm going to give you quickly, I'm going to just explain our model. You don't have to use our model. You will end up having to do pieces of this model. Whether you take Watermark's model or Orange's model or this model, you're going to have to use, you get involved in at least these three areas. So part of our, our focus, and this is a little bit my bent, is I want, to, I want to simplify things as much as possible. So the way we have described our model is not for people like you. It's for the people of our church. It's for them. We, we describe the model for them. I wanted it to be a no-brainer how we do what we do and kind of where you are. You can find your place in our strategy very easily. So this is really simple. We start married life right. We strengthen marriages for a lifetime. And we save boring, bruised, and broken marriages. That's our mission statement. Our marriage ministry exists to start married life right, strengthen marriages for a lifetime, and save boring, bruised, and broken marriages. That's what we do. And so as far as our people are concerned, all I care is that they know our three S's. We start, strengthen, and save marriages. That's what we do. I wanted it so simple that when I finally presented this to our staff, I said, all I want you to do is memorize three words. We start, strengthen, and save marriages. So that they could say that to a married couple that they engage with. Oh, what are you guys, where are you guys at? Oh, we're, we're engaged. Oh, you need to start marriage right at our church. You know, where are you? Oh, we've been married for three years. Oh, we have something for you. We can strengthen your marriage at our church. We have something for you. And then, man, we're not doing so well. We're doing more worse than we are better. We want to save your, save your marriage from that situation. And it's as simple, that's as simple as we could get it. We distilled it down to three words. Start, strengthen, save. And so everything we do falls into one of these categories. It touches the base of these categories. So we do a ministry that's similar to Merge called Making Marriage Make Sense. Uh, we abbreviate it with M-M-M-S. So Making Marriage Make Sense was um, our first real entrance into married world in an official capacity. Um, strengthening uh, marriage for a lifetime. We do small groups at our church. We actually have some Sunday morning small groups or Sunday school classes, depending on your background. And, um, and we have some of those things available. We do date night events um, and we do um, media version of equipping. Like we do, I have, I have a pretty strong platform in media. So I do uh, have a weekly radio show that I do and podcast. We do a lot of uh, online type stuff and electronic media to equip couples. And then uh, we do a uh, we do reengage at our church for saving marriages. In no way are those complete to answer every person that's going to fall in one of these categories, but they are a good start. So not everybody makes it to the making marriage make sense class. So sometimes we have to do an individual couple, but it's drastically reduced that weight. And uh, some couples don't want to get involved in a small group. And so we're going to have to figure out ways to engage them in different levels. And same with the save area. So let me uh, let me look at my notes here and get get, get us caught up. Um, I want to give you three reasons why uh, you need to make the leap from helping married people, which I think we all, you wouldn't be at this conference if you didn't want to help married people. That's where I was. I wanted to help married people, but I want to help you see how you can take, take a big leap from helping married people to having a marriage ministry. I want you to see the difference in that. Every one of us can help married people, but you can only help so many married people. You don't have enough time to help all the married people. A marriage ministry is a different way of thinking. It's a more organized way of thinking that allows you to start a marriage ministry that frankly is not dependent on the heroic effort of a few, but it is a more uh, processed approach to handling the needs that come your way. So let me give you a couple things. Number one, uh, you want to start a marriage ministry because you need to make marriage ministry repeatable. It's got to be able to be repeated over and over and over in a manner that's consistent so that you have uh, an acceptable um, ba basis for 
caring for people in these different phases, that you have an acceptable level of care for each one of these phases. So you want to make it repeatable. So the idea of building a marriage ministry is thinking clearly through these three areas or five areas or 10 areas, whatever areas you're going to think about. But when we thought start, strength, and save, we said, let's blow that out in our minds. What is, what's going to meet that minimum requirement for a standard of care in any given area? So that we can clearly say, if you're getting married and you want to, be, you want to have some sort of pre-marriage training, you need to go to making marriage make sense. It is our answer to that question. Do we make exceptions? Of course we make exceptions, but they're now exceptions. The rule is making marriage make sense. Man, my, husband, you know, my wife and I, we're just not connected. We want to meet some other couples. The way we do that is we get you in a small group. That's how we do that. And, the, and sometimes we... Sp- kind of start that process, jumpstart that process through a date night event, come to this date night event. It's a great place to meet other couples so we can get you in a small group. At the end of our Making Marriage Make Sense class, they get dumped directly into our small group strategy, into the strengthening world. And they get an invitation to drop into some type of uh, small group or uh, discussion group or even like one of the, the, one of the best next steps we give uh, our Making Marriage Make Sense group is uh, Financial Peace University, Dave Ramsey's deal. Um, they're going to fight about money. Might as well equip them. Um, so uh, we want to make our ministry repeatable. Number two, you want to make it scalable. Uh, a marriage ministry model in your church allows you to handle growth, even with church expansion and additional campuses, etc. Our church is now uh, running 3,000 to 5,000 people given the season of the year. Um, that's a lot of people. And that's, now we have two campuses. So we're having to think through scale. How do we handle that? How do you handle when your church grows? One of the great questions I get, um, we're, we're certainly not at the level that Watermark is in terms of their numbers. But we'll run you know, anywhere from 40 to 90 couples attend our semester of Making Marriage Make Sense. And they'll say, well, how do you get so many pre-marriage couples? Well, I don't know. We struck a nerve with this class in, in little old Memphis. And we have become the place to go for pre-marriage counseling um, through our class. And so it's blown up. We didn't anticipate it. I thought for sure after the first semester, we've exhausted everybody getting married in our church. Then we discovered 30 to 40% of the people attending our class don't go to our church. Staff members of other churches come to our pre-marriage course. So now we're the service to the community. And so we're starting to see that thing grow. How do you manage growth? Well, you have to make it scalable. Your ministries have to have clear enough definitions in them, how you do what you do in such a way that it's scalable. You can scale it up, you can scale it down. We have our pre-marriage ministry getting really close to the place where we're, gonna, we're able to take a, uh, a, a couple could take two couples in their home, take our curriculum and run with it. We could take our curriculum, send it to our campus 12 miles away and let them run it. So it's scalable. So that's, that's the goal. That's one of the reasons why I'm going to push you to start a marriage ministry and not just help marriage, married people. Um, and then uh, number three is it is intentional. It forces you to think through everything you want to help married couples with. Because most of us, like they said in the main session, we react to marriage issues in our church. We're simply reacting to the, the next fire that starts and we're putting out fires and we're helping couples the best we can. But this helps you become intentional. And so now our pre-marriage ministry is not reacting to the couples getting married. We are actually aggressively going into the community trying to take market share on pre-marriage. That's what we want. I want to be the, I want to be the only game in town. I, I want us to control that element because I think we do a great job of it. And I tell other pastors, I look at, I had lunch with them. I look them in the eye and say, you don't have time to do pre-marriage counseling. I know you don't. The, 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 Average pastor of a growing congregation or even a plateaued congregation does not have time to do pre-marriage counseling. And so you run the risk of setting up a pastor for failure. He won't do it well. And I'm telling you, pastors don't like doing things poorly. And so instead, here's what we offer. I tell pastors in our community, you send them to our, our pre-marriage, we will send them back. I'm not here to take your people. We have plenty of people. I'm not worried about taking yours. But we do want, your, we do want to affect the marriages in our city. And so we want to take the, we want to be the ones to train them. So that's, uh, that's, that's the reasons. That's some of the stuff that I want to encourage you with and, uh, and, and sort of talk you into maybe starting something. If you want to steal this model, feel free to steal it, put your name on it and tell your pastor that you came up with it. That's fine. But uh, I encourage you 
to, uh, to think through that and think bigger than just the, the few couples that you've been helping. Because I believe if you're here, then God's put enough of an energy in you towards marriage ministry that you want to reach more than you're able to reach now. You want to reach beyond your current limits. The only way to do that is to develop a strategy that is bigger than you. And uh, so here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. With your team, maybe when you get home, maybe in the next few days as you're debriefing things, um, have a really hard conversation about the current state of our marriage ministry. I, I pulled my assistant in on that, my wife in on that, a few other people that were key leaders in our church, and I said, we're going to do a really brutal assessment, and my, my personality is on the chopping block. You can say things about me in this meeting. And so one of the th- I'll, I'm going to give you the description of uh, where we were. Three years ago, here's where we were. Marriage ministry at High Point involves reacting to crisis with inconsistent care. Limited by the schedules of two or three people in our organization, we have variation at every level. We have no common language. It is personality dependent. Andy is the bottleneck. The result, we are helping some, completely missing others, discouraged and burning out our staff who are involved. That was the state of affairs in marriage ministry at a thriving, growing church where we were trying really hard. We were doing good things. But that's the state of affairs. And so my encouragement to you is get together with the people who have a voice, who have ideas, who are involved in that world to some degree and get a really solid assessment of where things are. So you, what, what I call, it's, it's the now and the next. And you're gonna have, you're gonna put some things on paper about where we are now. And then you're gonna look down the road and say, where are we going next? What's the next phase of development? Don't come up with a 10-year plan. Your 10-year plan is not gonna happen. You come up with the next year and say, this is where we we want to be in one year. Whatever you write down under next, you put that on on the wall of your office or your, you know, whatever you're doing. So you see that regularly. This is where we're headed. And we're going to try to start knocking this stuff out. So I'm going to get to the list because we're going to run out of time. Oh gosh, we're going to run out of time. Okay. So I'm sorry. I was going to share a Bible verse with you. I'm sorry. I'm going to skip it. All right. So, um, uh, so here are my takeaways. There are 20 things that, that I have learned starting a marriage ministry, which is like not simple. 20 things is not simple, but I'm going to still, still share them with you. Um, if you're going to start a marriage ministry, uh, here's some things to think about. Number one, start with your strength. Um, when, when we were looking at our situation, we said, okay, we could start, a, we could start anything. We could start more small groups. We can uh, start date nights. We can do crisis ministry. We can do pre-marriage ministries. Lots we can do. What are we good at was our question. Where's the natural strength in your organization? And I had developed a number of teaching sessions on marriage. A lot of it applied to pre-marriage. It was a no-brainer. We're not starting with re-engage. We're starting with pre-marriage. We're starting with making marriage make sense. I already had the curriculum. I'm passionate about it. I knew I could pull that off. So we rallied leaders. We built that ministry out of a strength. If you try to build a ministry out of a weakness, you will be discouraged and you will not complete the task. You'll quit. It's too hard. So find your strength. You won't be able to get to all of it anyway. So pick something that you feel like, whoever's in charge, whoever the leader is, has got to be passionate about it because especially if you're early in the process, you're carrying a lot of weight early on. You're having to convince your, oftentimes your church, other staff members, maybe your own spouse that this is worth your time. You're convincing a lot of people that this is something we need to do. I remember having our first conversations with our staff at large, and I would leave and I'd talk to my assistant. I would say, they don't believe us. They don't believe us. To them, to our staff, we have 35 staff and about 24 part-time staff. Our staff was looking at me like, Great, something else is what they were looking at. But they didn't see the vision. Uh, I will share the Bible verse, okay? Um, John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Here's what God did to me with that verse. He said, Andy, how in the world can we expect Christians to display the love of Christ to everybody else if they can't do it to the one person they are most committed to. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I I mean, I felt that as much personally as I did on behalf of every other married person. If we're gonna really 
prove that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, how can we do that if we can't love well the one person we are most committed to? That was the, that was the motivation for me. That was the, the transcendent why. Every day when you ask yourself, why are we doing this? Why have I added all this work? I had a full plate. I, had, I have no reason to start another ministry. I did it for that reason. Because that's where we're going to win and lose in the church is over family and particularly marriage. So start with your strength so that you can sustain it and you can finish the race. And then as you go, what will happen is because you're passionate, you will attract other people who have strengths in other areas. And it will, it will begin to grow from there. Number two, culture, culture, culture. Your marriage ministry will not be able to outrun your church's culture. Um, Susan was alluding to that about Watermark's culture, that they have created a culture friendly for sinners. If you're going to take, if you're going to, your church is going to take marriage ministry seriously, you have to consider your culture. So here's the reality. If you're going to start a divorce care ministry as part of your marriage platform, and when divorced people show up, they feel judged and condemned, don't start a divorce care ministry. Because people who have just been divorced, maybe still a little bit hopeful, the door's cracked on possibly reconciling with their ex, and they walk into a church culture that discourages or judges or critiques them in some manner, they are so vulnerable and so wounded, you could crush them in that moment. You need to consider where your church's culture is. You will not be able to outrun your church's culture. And I'll speak on behalf of other lead guys who are up front of churches talking every week. You won't be able to outrun your pastor's culture that he creates. So you have to consider how far you can do those things. And that will determine some of what you, where you start, some of the curriculum you choose to use, some of the way you craft those environments. So culture really, really matters. Um, number three, you've heard this uh, already once today, play offense when you can. One of the things that we stumbled into by accident, partly because it was a strength, we started with our pre-marriage, making marriage make sense. So our, our pre-marriage is, and we can, if you have questions about this later, I'll be glad to explain. We offer it to seriously dating, engaged, and newly married couples, first year married couples. So we started this out of a strength. I knew we could do well in this. But the reality is most people start their marriage ministry over here under crisis. Crisis ministry is a black hole, if you haven't noticed. There's no end to it. And it is incredibly emotionally taxing to whomever's involved. So I would advise you, if you're still at the starting line going, hmm, where do we begin? I'm going to encourage you, unless it is a clear, clear strength, I'm going to encourage you to not start with crisis. I may be like making someone mad at Watermark over that, but I think you have to be really committed to crisis and really good at it to start there because what will happen is it'll eat up all of your resources and time and you'll never get to the rest of this because you won't have time. And so when you can play offense, play offense, get ahead of some of these issues, build your marriage ministry around winning. What's hard, here's what I learned. This is so sad about crisis marriage. We can help some, but you, you take on a pretty significant group of people that are never changed in crisis ministry. You guys know that. The people who, they show up, but they have no intention of really growing or changing. They're not playing ball. You can generate a whole lot more wins over here. You can move the needle a lot faster over here and build that energy. So what we've done is, here's what's happened. My marriage mentors who serve in Making Marriage Make Sense, they've caught a vision now. They quit on me over here to join up over here. And now they're leading re-engage groups. Why? They caught the vision over here. They see the, they see the win. They see the excitement. And now they're over here. It's an easy deal. It works. So all that to say, just play offense when you can um, at, at every level. And you'll see, uh, you'll see a lot more uh, benefit from that. Number four, I mentioned this a couple times. Uh, some couples don't play ball. Accept the fact that as you attempt to offer ongoing marriage enrichment to couples, some take it and some don't. Some listen and some don't. Some show up and some don't. You, you, unless you are magic, I don't know how you get 100% participation, especially in your enrichment or your, your strengthening areas of ministry. Not every couple is going to get in a small group. Not every couple is going to show up to the weekend event or retreat or date night. They're just not all going to play ball. So you're going to have to just accept that reality. And you're going to have to, what my uh, lead pastor, he always says, we're going to move the movers, shape the shapers, uh, change the changers, and lead the leaders. 
we're going to move with the people moving. Now, we're not neglecting those folks, but you want to, you want to create wind and, and energy and momentum around marriage ministry. So you move with the people who are going to move. Um, I'll come back, I'm, at the very end, I'll come back to that one. But some couples aren't going aren't to get on board with you. Uh, here's another thing we learned. Small groups are hard. Small groups are hard. I don't care who you're reading, from West Coast to East Coast, from North to South, nobody, I mean nobody, has small groups figured out. Nobody has community groups figured out. I don't care what books they've written. Nobody has it figured out. So, and the reason why you kick yourself, why can't we get small groups up and running? Why can't we get more people in community? Because it's hard. It's hard. And it's people's schedules, it's busyness, it's lack of wanting to engage in people's lives. It's all, every, every reason. You have every reason. It's just hard work. Don't be discouraged in it. It's still beneficial for the ones who make it, who come show up to their, to, to that home every Thursday night. It, it's worth the time. So, um, just know that it's going to be hard. Number six, leverage what you have. If you don't have to start a new program, don't. If you don't have to start new programming, don't. If, you, if you're a, ch- a church that has Sunday school, leverage Sunday school. One of the great things we did, um, we, had, we already had a small group structure when we started looking at marriage ministry, and we said, okay, let's take every small group that has married people in it. Instead of just calling it a small group or a community group, Let's, at least on the staff side, let's just consider them married groups. It was, like a, it was like a mental shift. That's all it was. The people in the groups had no idea. You're in a group. You're just in a group. But you're, because you're married and in a group, you're now a married group in our minds. It, this, this brain kicks in. The marriage brain kicks in. We're not just running small groups. We're running married groups. And so once a year, we encourage, almost require them to do a marriage study. Ones that our staff have vetted and looked at and believe in and talk about. And we want them to do it once a year. After that, they can go back to, you know, the seven seals and Romans and you know, angels and whatever else they want to study. That's fine. But once a year, we're going to do something on marriage. And we're going to invest together in marriage. We're going to, inc- we're going to equip couples. If we do a, a series on marriage in the church, we're going to equip those small groups to have discussion around marriage in their small groups. We're going to treat them like married groups, not just community groups. So leverage what you have uh, and try to make the most of, of existing programming. Um, converting existing program is, is easier than starting new, uh, oftentimes. Sometimes you, it depends on the age of people and all those things. But if you can convert it, it's, it saves time and it doesn't change people's gears. Because you're just changing emphasis or focus. Um, if you're trying to start something new, that requires a whole new commitment of time and, and who's doing this and who else is coming and I, am I sure I want to be involved versus, hey, you know what, We're, go to your education pastor, go to your Sunday school leader, go to your small groups director and say, look, hey, would it be okay if once a year we provide something for all the groups and, and help them catch a vision for marriage ministry? Can I put a little video together on YouTube, send it out to all the groups, encourage them to play it at their group night and just encourage them on their marriages? Easy, right? You can do that on your phone. You can do that. Don't do it while you're driving, but you could do it while you're driving. I've never done that, as far as you know. And so, but those are things you could do. So leverage what you have. Number seven, we've got to move fast. Number seven, learn to speak male slash groom slash husband. All right, we've already talked about it. Um, men tend to be the ones that are the, they're the they're last to the party when it comes to marriage ministry. So learn to speak male. And uh, one of the things, this is not going to sound good. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and just preface this. The male, whoever the male person is representing your marriage ministry matters. If the men of your church can't relate to the male leading the marriage ministry, you will not reach the men. Because even the most out-to-lunch male in your church knows that if he's going to get involved in some type of marriage ministry, he doesn't want to turn out like that guy. Right? So you ha- if he were to give his life to Jesus and start running hard, he still don't want to be like that guy. You have to be willing to say, you know what? You're a great volunteer, but you're not the face. Because that will limit people's involvement in a big way. Um, I know that was terrible to say. But uh, there's, <laughs> I literally have this in my notes. Men like cheese on their burger, not at church. Not on their church. They don't like cheese at church. And man, I'm telling you what, guys. Uh, I thought about this in the last session. The church does not have a good reputation 
when it comes to anything that is off Sunday morning. Okay, so you think about church programming, Sunday night church, Wednesday night classes, some other event. It's like the excellence level drops significantly when you leave the worship service, right? And for good reason, we put our best foot forward on Sunday morning. So everybody knows if they're coming to anything else at church outside of the Sunday morning worship service, it's less than. They already know that. Let's don't make it worse than that. Let's maybe prove to them that we put A-level, worship service-level energy into something that's not at the worship service. Let's prove it to them. But be, be thinking about that. Um, learn to speak male. Um, your marriage matters. Okay? Um, nobody has a perfect marriage. I certainly don't have a perfect marriage. But marriage ministry forces us to think about our own marriage. Your volunteers, they have to think about their own marriages. And so your marriage matters. So I want to urge you, never, ever stop growing as a husband or a wife. That is vital. Your people will see right through you. They will see right through you. So if you're going to make, I literally had to do this. I, told, I used to tell couples, I do counseling with them. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 13. I want you to take all the quali- 16 qualities of love in verses 4 through 8. I want you to take each one of them and write a paragraph about how you have failed in your marriage on that particular element of love. Love is patient. Dear husband, wife, here's how I have not been patient with you. Da, 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 da. And then, then you go to love is kind and do the same thing all the way, all 16. And I want you to present that as a letter to your spouse. I, I signed that for months and realized I'd never done it. And so I did it. It is the hardest project you will ever do because you will find yourself having to determine, are you going to share with your spouse the stuff that you thought about but didn't say, the secret stuff? I was not patient with you the other day, but I didn't say anything to you. I just was mad at you all day in my mind. Whoa, that's like master's level marriage kind of homework. And so, but we have to care for our own marriages. And so what ends up happening oftentimes, the the more involved in ministry we get, the more strain it puts on our own families and our own homes. And we have to be really careful with that. So do the best you can to uh, handle your own marriage appropriately. Uh, Model healthy honesty and growth for your own church. Um, Number nine, vulnerability is the currency of marriage ministry. That comes very hand in hand with the previous one. Vulnerability is currency in marriage ministry. You have got to be willing to share where you've blown it. Now here's the rule on sharing. We share our scars, not our open wounds. Tell your volunteers that. If you just got in a fight with your wife, it is not fair game for a sermon illustration right? You deal with it, you let the wound heal, and you share your scars, not your open wounds. That's how you, that's how you respectfully deal with those things. And my advice to you is get permission first. Just a little piece of advice. Um, number 10, challenge your terms and assumptions, okay? The more you do marriage ministry, the more you're going to reach people who don't go to your church. So we have to challenge our terms. Uh, let me give you some. Um, we know what it means. I think we know what it means. Um, men need to be the spiritual leader of their homes, spiritual leadership. If I asked five people in this room to define spiritual leadership, I would get five different answers. You don't even know what it means, but you throw it around. What is spiritual leadership? Somebody's going to say praying with each other. Somebody's going to say reading the Bible together. Somebody's going to say making all the decisions. We're going to have all this variation around a term we throw around as if everybody knows it. Husbands, you need to be the spiritual leader of your home. They have no clue what that means. I I dare say any man in this room knows what that means. But we use the term. We need to define our terms. Here's a challenge for you. Go define what spiritual leadership means because your men don't know what it means and neither do you. Go figure it out. Uh, Another one, head of the household. What does that mean? You start throwing that around in church, every woman in the room is going to get offended at you, right? Because you just, you didn't say it, but you communicated Uh, Men make all the decisions and wives are doormats to their husbands. All around this term, head of the household. Define your terms. Um, Biblical marriage. Whose marriage? You don't want to read the Old Testament. Marriage in the Old Testament is ugly. Jacob's marriage? Oh, I don't talk about his. Um, Adam and Eve? No. 
Abraham, no, Abraham, that's terrible. Uh, he lied about his wife being his sister. That's bad. Like, like you start really looking, it's not the greatest lineup of marriages, right? We have to be careful. We know what that means. We're not talking about actual marriages in the Bible. We're talking about what the Bible teaches about marriage. Average person doesn't know that. They don't know that. They don't know that's what you mean. We have to define our terms. Covenant marriage. We, again, we would probably get five different answers. You know, you, you know Andy, a, a godly marriage. <laughs> What's a godly marriage? I know lots of people who say they have a godly marriage, but when I actually look at their marriage, it doesn't seem all that godly. But I don't even know what it means. But we throw the terms around. Define your terms. Um, here's a funny one, especially in the pre-marriage world. Get connected to the body. <laughs> and the guys are like, Amen. Amen. That's what we've been doing. You told us we shouldn't do that, but we've been doing that. Um, so we have to be clear on our terms. Um, assumptions. Um, some of us have the assumption that most couples are waiting to have sex before marriage. And if they're not, they live in guilt and conviction. No, they don't. I tell our pre-marriage couples in our Making Marriage Make Sense class, I say, it is my belief that 90% of you are sleeping together and or living together until you tell us otherwise. That is our assumption. And we're, we've been right every time. And they don't feel overwhelming guilt over it. It is just the way things go. So if your approach to those things is, well, of course they know that that's not the right thing to do. They don't know if it's the right thing to do. I taught a message in our church about a month ago called sexual atheism. Have you heard the term? Sexual atheism is I believe in God and I follow Jesus in every area of my life except for my sex life. God has no voice in my sex life. Everybody in your community that is ages 20 to 35 is a sexual atheist. Not everybody, but a lot of them. They just don't think God is relevant in their sex life. But if we assume, oh, they know what God says. They know they're, sa- they're saving themselves from marriage. No, they're not. And so we have, to, we have to challenge some of those assumptions. It changes how we approach things. Um, oh, they're Christians. They won't get divorced. There's no, no distinction in the stats. Of course they'll go get divorced. Um, they told us the truth in the counseling session. They did not tell you the truth. They told you the 20% they were willing to share. I, had, I believe every, I have, to, I have to remind myself of this because I'm such a, a bleeding heart. I want to just like, I want to believe the best about these couples, but I have to walk away and go, okay, they told me the 20% they were willing to share. There is 80% left untapped. So if the guy says, if the guy says, I look at porn occasionally, you can almost assume he's addicted to porn. Okay? His assessment is it's an occasional thing. It's probably an addiction level. And I'm not trying to paint everybody in a bad light. It's just a reality. We have to be willing to face our assumptions and not rose color this whole thing if we're going to help couples. Last one. As long as we teach them the Bible and preach the truth, their marriage will grow. That is not true. That's not true. Sometimes we, ha- uh, we, have to, we have to move some of the different pieces of marriage to help them even see how it works. I had a guy come to our, our pre-marriage, and he was not a believer. And I offer, like I do in every class, I said, hey, anybody in this room that's not a Christian, I feel like every unbeliever needs a fair opportunity to hear the story of Jesus. And so I'm offering to buy anybody that wants to have that meeting. I'll buy you dinner and we'll have a conversation. I'm not trying to talk you into it. I just think everybody needs a fair description of what Jesus is all about. Have one guy take me up on it. He's an atheist. And he sat down and he told me, he said, Andy, here's the thing. I'm not sure I'm ready to believe in Jesus or not, but you challenged us to stop sleeping together. And so we did. He's just sitting there telling me right over dinner, telling me, so we did. And I can't describe it, but it's been the best our relationship has ever been. And he says, and so, so he's like interested now in God, right? Because I gave him one thing to try, test God. And he did. Still not a believer. But he's not as against it as he was. So we have to be willing to challenge those assumptions and help people see the truth. All right, um, here we go. Uh, we're going to move fast here. Um, number 11, people don't read. People don't read. You might read marriage books. 
You just got lifelong love and a fun-loving marriage. You should read them both. But guess what? People don't read. So you're going to recommend, hey, get, get Lifelong Love. It's a great book, by the way. It's my number one recommended book. I read it two months ago. Fantastic book. You should all read it. Here's what I know. Most of you won't because people don't read. People buy books, but people don't read. So here's an idea. Instead of telling a husband who's got a, a full-time job, a wife who's got three or four kids at home to read a book, buy them the book so you're legit photocopy the two chapters you think are really going to make an impact in their marriage, stick them in the book and say, I know you're probably not going to have time to read the whole book, but read the two chapters I photocopied for you and hand it off to them. What if those one or two chapters led to reading the whole book? Much better chance than, than saying, go tackle 12 to 15 chapters. You could tackle one or two. If you like the book, keep reading. If you don't, that's fine. Put it away. But those are the two I think you need to read. What that means is you have to be a reader. You got to keep reading. People don't read, so uh, give them bite-sized chunks to help them grow. Um, this, I, love the, I love this one, number 12. Never give up not giving up. Never give up not giving up. Um, you are always an ambassador of hope when it comes to marriage. You be, you be the other voice. You be on the other shoulder. You be the voice on the other shoulder saying there's hope. Every marriage goes through, at the very least, goes through a rough patch of a conversation or an argument where somebody feels like it's hopeless. Every one of you, I mean, I'm not the only marriage guy that's gone through that. You've probably gone through that, right? Where you had that argument, where at the end of the argument, it just felt hopeless. You had that hopeless, sick feeling in your stomach. And you started hearing voices in your head like, is it worth it? Should I keep fighting? Oh, that we're not getting anywhere. You be that voice on the other shoulder that says, nope, there's hope. You'll get through this. You fight for your marriage. You keep pushing. I, I had literally, in the airport on the way here, I had a guy texting me over, he doesn't think, he's, he's looking for justification to get divorced. He thinks he should walk away because he's not getting sex enough. And I told him in my reply, I said, bro, I love you. I said, but I cannot say I love you. And not call you back to what, and as a believer, call you back to what God's called you to, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That I get it. You want to have more sex. I under, totally understand that. But you can't, yes, this, everything you've listed here is incredibly selfish. There is hope for your marriage. I always tell couples this, and they always laugh and then hate me. But it's, uh, in a lot of cases, this is not an every, this is not great advice for everything, but this is decent advice for a lot of couples. Give it 20 years and call me back right? Sometimes we just have to stick it out and, and get through it and realize we were being petty or the issue was really not a big deal or uh, we were in a, a perfect storm of stress because of the kids and how busy we were in the job and, and we just have to get through it. So encourage your couples. Never give up on giving up. Uh, one of the cool things we do, um, we, uh, we celebrate with our couples. This was a low-cost, high-impact move we made started this year. I sent out a Facebook post, email blast the church. I said, I want to know your wedding anniversary. Send it in. Had it set up a little web page. They click it in. It goes into our database. And uh, my assistant pulls uh, all the January anniversaries in one chunk. Puts them on a spreadsheet for me. Tells me how many years they've been married. And I write anniversary cards to every anniversary we have in our system. Every month. It ends up being about 20 to 30 cards a month. I can write that. It's, I literally had the card designed with a special note on it for this year. We'll do an annual card, uh, a fresh printing of a new card every year. So all I have to do is basically sign my name. Hey, happy for you guys. Man, 30 years, that's great. Just a quick encouragement. But here's the thing. Couples respond to what is celebrated. Celebrate marriage. We get so caught up on this end of the spectrum. Man, let's crisis marriage all the time. It's a simple congratulations. You made it another year. Good for you. It's fun when I get that first anniversary one. Like, man, you made it to, to the end of year one. I pray that God give you 50 more and they get better every year. Isn't, that, isn't it cool to be that voice in someone's life? Celebrate marriage. Create a narrative of hope and positivity about marriage in your church. Celebrate it. Celebrate marriage. Um, 13. Man, we got to move. 13. Say it. Um, our ministries must be the place where couples hear what no one else will tell them. We have to be willing to tell a couple that they're being stupid, that they're being selfish, like I did the guy in the text. 
um, to tell a couple that they don't need to get married or they need to put off their wedding and wait. We have to be willing to say the thing that no one will say. I shared this in the little Q&A earlier, but had a, I was interviewing a prospective marriage mentor for the marriage class. And I told them that thing. I said, we, you know, part of the job of being a marriage mentor is you have to say the thing that no one else will say. And he, sat, he literally like sat back in his chair and he, he looked at his wife. They're, they're a, uh, a second marriage and his son was getting married and marrying a gal that they did not think was a believer. So they recommended that they go to their pastor friend to go get pre-marriage counseling. Thinking, of course the pastor will surface all this and he'll talk to him about it, right? Well, the pastor didn't. He got busy, met with him like twice. It never went there. Well, this whole thing gets discovered at the rehearsal dinner. So the pastor's all of a sudden backing out. I don't think I can do this wedding. They're not believers. I'm not going to do the wedding. And the parents are like, you didn't, you didn't talk to him about this? We knew, but you, we counted on you. Like had a big argument, all this stuff. And, I was like, and I'm sitting there at the table going, that's why we have to say it. Because the people that love the couples the most won't. Parents will not say it to their children getting married. Siblings will not say it to one another. Best friends will not say it to their friends. Adult children will not say it to their adult parents. Nobody will say it. We have to say it and we have to train our leaders, our volunteers to say it and speak into those lives. Uh, Number 14, Leverage community. Never underestimate or underutilize community. Um, if you can build a marriage ministry around groups of couples with decent leaders, you are way ahead of the game. If you can get out of the game of individual couples and into the game of groups, you're winning. Because you can only handle so many individual couples. But if you can spread your leadership out, start de- delegating that leadership to other people in developing a system of groups at every level. Groups at pre-marriage, group at strengthen, group at save, group them up. One of the things I learned, I did a wedding, uh, I did two weddings last Saturday, back-to-back weddings. I do a lot of weddings. But um, this girl, she said, we loved, loved, loved our class. And she said, she goes, one of the reasons that we just loved coming every week was because we got to check in with the other couples in the group and figure out, did they have that hard conversation with their in-laws? And did they deal with that issue that of, uh, of debt in their marriage? Did they talk that through? We were excited about seeing everybody have those different conversations and grow and all that. This girl, I pronounce them husband and wife. So they're exiting the auditorium. And on the way out, the, I mean, 500 people at this wedding. The only stop on the way out of the church, she stops and high fives her mentor on the way out. I was so proud. I was like, yes. And, uh, and so, again, leverage that community. It gives people more reasons to come than just we need it. It's, man, we need to be there for them. And, man, we really connected with that leader. And we have lots of reasons to be a part of things so that their marriage benefits. Um, number 15, invest in staff marriages at your church. How many of you are staff members at your church? Okay, let me give you some statistics from the staff that I lead at High Point Church. We have 35 full-time staff, 24 part-time staff, a lot of temporary workers. I asked our financial guy, our administrator, I said, I want some information about the cost of marriage problems in our organization for the last year. We've had a, a couple of issues come up. Um, the direct cost of third-party counseling, $22,000. Additional cost of replacement of one of our staff members, $10,000. Internal staff uh, cost estimate for counseling and coaching, uh, $7,500, estimated 150 hours. Internal staff cost uh, of search and replacement of employees, $2,000. Calculated lost time of employees and uh, and confidants due to issues associated with marriage problems, around $5,000. That's talking at the water cooler about my problems. Um, calculated cost for the prior year of marriage issues for High Point Church, $46,200. That's in the last year in my organization. We had a, an unfortunate divorce take place. We had to move people around and things like this. Is a, things You cannot assume that your staff who love Jesus, and I'm sure they're having their quiet times every day, are having healthy marriages. You can't assume. One of the things I'm trying to convince pastors to do and churches to do is incentivize the health of their staff marriages. 
Let me tell you something. If you gave every one of your staff members, every one of them, uh, a night out at a hotel and a nice five-star restaurant dinner for completing a marriage course, you've saved your church money. It would save us a ton of money. So we're, we're encouraging our staff in this next year around that same scenario, dinner and a hotel for going through re-engage. Not because you need it, but because if you do it, you get to have a dinner out with your wife and your, or your husband and you get to have a nice hotel stay in a fancy hotel and we're going to put you up. And, and here's, the, here's what, what, one of two things will happen, or maybe both. Their marriage gets healthier or maybe gets saved in some cases. We don't know because you can't make assumptions. Their marriage gets better and then they become ambassadors for marriage ministry. Oh, we went through that. We, uh, why'd you go, why did y'all go through it? Oh, we went through it because they offered a free hotel, right? No, we're not, we're not one of those couples, right? We don't have problems, but we went because they were giving something away, but I'm telling you, y'all need to go to it. That'll happen in your church. Incentivize your staff. Don't, uh, don't take that for granted. Number 16, we're getting there. Oh gosh, um, get your pastor and staff on board. That's part of the thing, but let me tell you this. Here's what you need to do. I, we, we made this, this language so simple, our staff could memorize it. I literally explained the whole vision. We start, uh, we start married life right, strengthen marriages for a lifetime, save boring, bruised, and broken marriages. And then six weeks later, came back and did a pop quiz in our staff meeting. Do you know, do you know how to explain our marriage ministry? And they got it. They figured it out. I want them to know the language. I want them to be able to say it. I want to give a little skin in the game. Uh, I'm a lead guy. There's some lead guy at your church or a couple of lead people at your church. And here's what you need to do. You need to figure out where your pastor and your key leaders are, where they're good at marriage. Where do they model great marriage practices and import that into how you teach about marriage? One of the things that uh, Chris Conley and his wife Karen are so good at is they are always communicating effectively with each other. They are so connected. They are, I mean, like everybody should connect as well as they do. They are so connected. So I definitely talk about that. I want people to see our leaders in that, in that really good uh, practice of marriage and understanding how things work. So find out what your lead pastor's real, he and his wife are really good at and promote it. And then your pastor feels a little skin in the game because he feels like he's not an outsider to what you're doing. So get your uh, lead pastor and staff involved. Um, be a coach, not a therapist. We learned this. Um, the goal is not to create individual dependency on you. The goal is to coach couples on the field of their own marriage to do well. Coaching, by definition, leans towards being responsible to, not for. We do not want to... It's not your marriage. It's their marriage. That dawned on me in the middle of a, a coaching se- or a counseling session at the time. I thought it was my job to fix them. And I realized, oh, this is not my marriage. It's my job to coach them. It's their job to run up and down the field in their life. I have one marriage I'm responsible for. One. The rest I'm responsible to. And so my job is to coach them, not to do it for them. It's to coach them. If you find yourself in a counseling session where you're trying to speak for the couple, for each other, you're playing translator the whole time, sometimes that can be helpful, but you're doing too much of it. They're not communicating. You're communicating for them. They've got to learn to talk. That's what happens when you do a counseling session. They call you three hours later and go, it all blew up in the car. Why? Because didn't, they didn't do anything in the meeting. The real work got done three hours later in the car. So you have to be... Uh, you have to be, don't be a therapist, uh, be a coach, um, and, and vet, vet your professional counselors, the ones you refer to. If you refer to them, ha- get to know them, have lunch with them, talk to them. I have one guy in the city of Memphis I trust enough. Um, we have coffee once a year. We talk. He's a friend. I, I respect his approach. Um, he understands what we do as a church, but I can't tell you how many times I've sent people to professional counselors for that to be a train wreck. And it doesn't work. So vet your, vet your counselors in your area. Number 18, really quick. Um, get smart on hot marriage issues. I'm just going to list them for you. Uh, sex, porn, and lust. Money, in-law issues, social media-related issues. Opposite sex friendships. Um, parenting issues. Empty nest syndrome. Get smart on that stuff. Get your volunteers smart on that stuff. Read articles, read books, figure it out. Because those are where your questions are going to come from. 
those areas. It's not going to get too far from that. Um, the number one change in the last two years in all of my marriage coaching is every single crisis marriage uh, counseling session I have includes Facebook. Every single one of them. So, and couples constantly argue with me because I, I draw a really hard line around opposite sex friendships and befriending that, you know, friends from high school. Yeah. No, I, I have a wife. I don't need girlfriends, right? I'm a, I have a wife. And people get all up in arms because I'm such a hard line on that deal. And, but I'm like, you don't sit in my office. Every single struggling couple deals with that issue. So it's not going away. Um, number 19, we're almost there. Balance programming, programs and media. You can only host so many programs. Start developing media to equip marriages. I'm not kidding. I do it all the time. A silly little seven-minute video on your phone or your iPad, post it to YouTube, email it to your group. Equip marriages using technology. You cannot gather people every time you have something great to tell them about marriage. You can't. You have to leverage media. God has given, you have to look at it this way. God has given the world media for the church to exploit. That is the job of, of us using media. Number, and number 20, they're hungry. Married people want marriage ministry. They want ways to connect with other couples. They want ways to improve their marriages. They want great teaching. They want it. You build it, they will come. As long as it's not too cheesy, they'll come. I'm sorry I threw all that at you. If you would like to get those notes um, in more detail, you can go to andysavage.com and you can get those off today's blog post. Um, I hope and pray that you guys um, will take a step. I don't want you guys to boil the ocean. Just go do one thing. Do that thing you're good at and do it really well and then let God expand it from there. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for these fine people in this room and got all the heart and passion and energy you've given them for marriages. And I pray, God, that you would put wind in their sails, that you would give them favor uh, with, their, with their church leadership, with their community. God, that, that they would have that sense that everything they touch turns to gold in marriage ministry. God, that you would just make the path successful for them. And uh, Lord, I pray that just like Joshua, you told him that everywhere he'd go, he'd win. Everywhere he'd go, he would, he would succeed, except for those times he took his eyes off you. I pray that that would be true of us that if we're not following you, that you would make us fail. But if we're following you, God, I pray you make us wildly successful for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.